Uh, we'll hear argument now on number 86843, National Credit Union Administration versus the First National Bank and Trust Company and a related case. Uh, General Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress enacted the Federal Credit Union Act to foster the development of strong and stable cooperative credit institutions so that persons not being served by banks could obtain credit at non-usurious rates. Credit union proponents advocated including the common bond provision because experience had shown that credit unions organized around pre-existing cohesive groups were most likely to form economically strong cooperative institutions. The banks lack standing under the APA to challenge the NCUA's interpretation of the common bond provision because Congress enacted that provision as an organizing principle to promote financially viable credit unions and not to impose substantive restrictions or constraints on competition. Thus, the bank's competitive interests are not within the, quote, zone of interests Congress sought to protect. Well, how do you reconcile that position, Mr. Waxman, with our decision in the uh, Clark case? Well, uh, Justice Rehnquist, in Clark, this Court determined that the plaintiffs, the security industry, had standing because it found that Section Sections 36 and 81 of the McFadden Act, which were the substantive provisions at issue there, had been enacted to reflect a, quote, congressional concern to keep national banks from obtaining monopoly power over credit and money through unlimited branching. And therefore, Congress, the Court found, Congress had arguably legislated against the very competition that the securities interest was seeking to challenge. In this case, the common bond provision in particular, and even the Federal Credit Union Act in general, was not enacted with any thought to restrict or control competition in any way. It was enacted in order to provide a means for strengthening the development of Well, Mr. Waxman, the the Investment Company Institute versus Camp case was enacted, of course, to restrict competition. And we found standing there, didn't we? You did, Justice O'Connor. And I think it's fair to acknowledge that that case, at least in our view, represents the outer limits of where this Court has gone. Yeah, I think that's the, the closest case for the standing argument. And I, how I, do you get I around think, that? I think it is, and I think it's important and can be readily distinguished in three ways. First of all, although the Court acknowledged that the principal reason for enacting Section 16 of the Glass-Steagall Act had been to protect banks from engaging in investment activities for their own sake, the Court, both in the opinion in Investment Company Institute and subsequently in Clark, also noted that Congress had been concerned with, quote, the danger to the economy as a whole. So it wasn't the only reason. But more importantly, the basis for the holding in Investment Company Institute was that Section 16 of the Glass-Steagall Act was legislation against competition. The Court found in that case that Congress had legislated against the competition that the petitioners sought to challenge. So even if you construe that case in the broadest possible way, and I would simply adopt Justice Harlan's characterization of the majority opinion in that case in dissent, he said, if Congress prohibited entry into a field of business for reasons relating to competition, 
then a competitor has standing to seek observance of the prohibition. Now, he thought that that was a holding that was not warranted by the Court's prior precedents. But even if that is what Investment Company Institute versus Camp stands for, that's not this case. The common bond provision, and indeed the FCUA in general, have nothing to do with competition. They were not, there was not a reason for enacting the common bond. Well, in order to find out the answer to that question, what was the reason for enacting the common bond, must we go back into the legislative history? I think you do, because prudential, the prudential standing inquiry this Court has taught is an analysis of what Congress intended. That is, the interest, to quote Association of Data Processors, the interest sought to be protected by the complainant must or be arguably within the zone of interest to be protected by the statute. So we must determine what the zone of interest to be protected by the statute was. And here it was clearly an intent to foster the development, the rapid development of stable and strong credit unions because, and I think it's also important to, to, to understand this, in 1934 when Congress was considering enactment of the Federal Credit Union Act, the country was beginning to come out of the Great Depression. Well, it came out of the Great Depression the war. The banks, it was in the Great Depression. Yeah. The banks had failed in great numbers, but for the past 10 or 15 years, there had been developed state chartered credit institutions, many of most characterized by the existence or formed around a common bond. And con the legislative history is replete with recognition that notwithstanding the bank's record during the Great Depression, not a single state-chartered credit union had failed. And what Congress wanted to do in enacting the Federal Credit Union Act was to replicate the success of the state-chartered institution. General Waxman. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to start at the end and work down. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg. If we go to the zone test, which is you're arguing that, that the banks are outside the zone. I believe that test was first introduced in an opinion by Justice White where he said it's only arguably within the zone, so I would assume one need not consult the legislative history. One could see if a lawyer could construct a good argument. And further, didn't Justice White say that this was not a, a, a difficult test to meet. Well, he was, in that opinion, expanding standing beyond what it had been up until then, and he explained that this test was rather easier to meet. Justice Ginsburg, the zone of interest test, which I believe was first articulated in the data processing case, was a case that was decided with explicit reference to the legislative history in order to determine Congress's purpose, that is, who Congress intended to benefit. The substantive statute at issue in this case, in that case, was Section 4 of the National Banking Act. And in analyzing the standing question, the Court looked basically to two sources. First, the legislative history and the extensive comments in the legislative history that showed that Section 4 was, and I'm quoting the Court now, a response to the fears expressed by a few senators that without such a prohibition, the bill would have enabled banks to engage in non-banking activity and thus constitute a serious exception 
to the accepted policy which strictly limits banks to banking. But the other such extensive, uh, such extensive legislative history. If legislative history is a proper source of this, uh, I suppose all you would need is a couple of statements by individual senators who could, who could cause the statute to be uh, broader than it otherwise would. Surely one or two senators can render it arguably within the zone of interest. Well, I, I this think puts just, an awful lot of weight on legislative history. I, I, I did not mean to, to suggest that a tremendous amount of weight ought to be put on legislative history, but nonetheless, the Court has on occasion looked at legislative history to determine Congress's intent. But I think, Justice Scalia, in response to your point, it's also very important in looking at the Court's opinion in data processing, which is the landmark case that established the zone of interest test. It, the, the Court made explicit reference to two of its prior decisions in competitor standing cases, the Atchison-Topeka Railway case and Hardin versus Kentucky mm -hmm. Utilities. And it characterized its decision in association of data processing as an extension or consistent with those prior competitor standing cases. And it's very instructive, I think, if I can just beg the Court's indulgence for a moment, to recite what this Court stated in Hardin versus Kentucky Utilities in its 1968 opinion, it said, this Court has, it is true, repeatedly held that the economic injury which results from lawful competition cannot in and of itself confer standing on the injured business to question the legality of any aspect of its competitors' operations. And it cited a line of cases between 1880 and 1940. But competitive injury provided no basis for standing in the above cases simply because the statutory and constitutional requirements the plaintiffs sought to enforce were in no way concerned with protecting against competitive injury. In contrast, it has been the rule, at least since the Chicago Junction case decided in 1924, that where the particular statutory provision invoked does reflect a legislative purpose to protect a competitive interest, the injured competitor has standing to require compliance with that provision. And that, Justice O'Connor, is the precise rationale on which this case is distinguished from Investment Company Institute versus CAMP. Suppose that we could establish by the legislative history that we would accept as dispositive or by judicial notice, that if the agency's interpretation of the statute had been intended by the legislature or put into the statute in explicit terms, that the banks would have actively opposed it on the grounds of it being a competitive, a, a competitive injury. Does that, would that change this case? It, I, I don't think it does. I, I don't think it could be established because Because it seems to me that that's a quite a plausible in, inference. The legislative history, to the extent the legislative history reflects anything at all about the bank's interest in this, it reflects two things. One, with respect to the but, but I'm assuming that it does establish the proposition that, that I put forward, that the banks would have been very active in opposition to this bill had this interpretation been written explicitly into the statute. Well, then I think the answer is that the banks would have the same remedy now that they would have had then, which is to go to Congress and ask for a legislative adjustment. If the statute is, and turning to the merits, if the statute is, as we argue, ambiguous, that is, that the phrase groups having a common bond can just as easily be interpreted to mean groups each having its own common bond, 
or groups all sharing a single common bond, the agency's interpretation must be given deference. And that, I, I, I would submit to the Court, is the position that the banks would be in had they believed at the time that this would be given the interpretation it was and objected. That is, they would have had a legislative remedy. Congress, for what whatever if I don't, reason — What if I don't agree with it that it's at all ambiguous? And if I, if I thought any banker or, indeed, uh, beer salesman who read this, uh, uh, this language would come to the conclusion that, that each member of the group had to have a common bond with the others, then, then what would your response to Justice Kennedy's argument be? Then it seems to me the banks are out of luck on standing grounds. That is — No, but his argument is they, they would have opposed it. The, the, the language seems to limit these, uh, uh, these uh, credit unions to a particular field, and the banks surely would have come in against it if they weren't limited uh, in, in this way. Justice Scalia, Chevron says, as I understand it, that if an agency's interpretation is not in conflict with the plain language of the statute, deference is due. And if the plain language of the statute, for whatever reason, inadvertence by Congress or a conscious choice to leave the decision to the agency, persists, what this Court must do in response to a challenge by the banks, if they have standing, is look to determine whether the agency's interpretation is a permissible or reasonable one. And General Waxman, I just want to be clear on one point. Is essentially your standing argument that there could be no challenger to this in the Court, that essentially the logical challenger, the banks, are out. So this would be essentially immune from judicial review, accepting your view of standing. No, not at all, Justice Ginsburg. Who could I think challenge the logicals it? challengers are, in fact, the same kind of parties that have been challenging chartering decisions, and that is members of credit unions. The common bond provision was enacted to protect the strength and stability of credit unions and, therefore, to protect the members of the credit unions. And in the cases that we cited in our principal brief, there are instances in which members of credit unions have sued either the NCUA or the state chartering agencies saying, you're trying to add disparate groups or you're trying to add more groups than we think is safe and sound. Could a competing credit union have standing to challenge? I think a competing credit union might have standing if it was challenging a decision that the agency had made under Section 1754 of the Act, which requires that the the NCUA ascertain the economic advisability of the proposed of the proposed chartering. Why doesn't that open it to Why doesn't that open it to banks? Well, that's economic advisability. Sounds to me something like. Uh, competitive possibility. Here's, here's the reason. Because the agency has interpreted economic advisability, the statutory term, to mean, quote, that it will be a viable institution and its chartering will not materially affect the interests of other credit unions or the credit union system. Yeah, but that's a, that's, that's a two-part standard, and it seems to me the first part is, is equally open to the banks to raise. In any event, Justice Isn't it? I don't know what — No, I — Liability is a wonderful word, but it's — and I'm not sure what it means, but it says something about economic feasibility, and that's a product of competition, and that implicates banks in general, doesn't it? Justice Souter, the banks, number one, have not challenged the determination of economic advisability. But what about the answer to my question? If they had — I would argue that they do not have standing because the evident purpose of that statutory provision was to make sure that when the NCUA charters a credit union, 
it does so taking cognizance of the interests of other credit unions and the credit union system. Well, that certainly is included, but it seems to me that in this argument, and I, and I thought in the argument you were, you were making earlier, you are making the assumption that there can only be one purpose or that there is at least a predominant purpose and that controls. And is, is, is there authority in our cases for that? In other words, why, why, for example, in this case, could it not have been both the purpose of Congress uh, to, to assure the, 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 the kind of community soundness of these credit unions and to protect regular banks from their competition? Why can't it be both? And if it's both, why isn't there standing to the bank? The, the answer to your question is your cases, most recently Bennett versus Speer, do recognize that Congress can have two purposes. But in this case, there was none. There was no purpose reflected in the legislative history well, of the Well, but that is the only source. banks from competition. Let, let me ask you this. Let's assume we had a case in which the legislative history was totally silent. Um, would we not, in, in, and let's assume that were the case here, I realize that's not your position, wouldn't it be fair in that case for us to infer that the purpose of this limitation, or at least one purpose of this limitation, was in fact the protection of neighboring banks from competition? Would, would that be legitimate? It would not be fair. Even if the legislative history itself — Well, then how would we ever decide the standing question? Well, I think maybe then it goes to who has the burden of proof. The plaintiff has the burden of showing that it is within the zone right. of interest. Right. And why wouldn't the plaintiff have a perfectly sound argument to say, look, this seems, among other things, uh, to protect us from competition? Why, therefore, may we not infer a, a purpose for standing doctrine? The, the accepted purpose, and the, dis, and, the, and the Court of Appeals, the Court below, specifically found that it would be anomalous in light of the available evidence to suggest that no, this but I'm a, No, but you're changing the question, I think, with respect. I'm saying let's assume the, the record is silent. We don't have any legislative history. All we have is what's on the face of the statute. Would it not be a legitimate inference that the protection of banks against competition was at least a purpose of this limitation? I think it would not, because the way that the common bond provision works is not to set up any sort of substantive picket line or bar or entry restriction. It is purely to determine which individuals in the United States get to belong to which credit unions. There's no allegation in this case that there is any individual member who belongs to a credit union which, if the banks win, will not be able to belong to some other credit union. This is purely an internal governing device for the industry to decide who belongs to which credit union. But it is a limitation of some kind, isn't it? I mean, it's a limitation it's on the, the credit union. It, it is. It is expressed as a limitation at the urging of the proponents of the credit union industry. But it's, so it's to, meant to be confining. It is meant to be confining in the sense that the statute requires something that the, cre the proponents of the credit union movement desperately wanted, which is to maximize success, that these groups be organized around, that credit unions be organized around groups having a common bond. May, may I reserve the balance of my time? Yes. Thank you, General Waxman. Mr. Roberts? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I would like to pick up with Justice Kennedy's question. If the banks had known about this interpretation, they would have objected. 
First of all, that's beside the point. You don't get standing under the zone of interest test simply because you objected. Congress may not have uh, accepted your objection. Well, I, I don't know that it's beside the point because uh, the way you're arguing, it's something of, of a trap. Uh, let's assume uh, that the uh, most plausible interpretation uh, of, of this regulation is the, is the interpretation that the banks now advance. If they were satisfied that that's what the statute meant, you know the bankers' lobbyists are — I assume the bankers had lobbyists in, 19, in the 1930s? Uh, they did. I'm sure they did. And they would have been all over this statute but, uh, and all over the Hill had it — had it uh, been given the plausible interpretation that you're now arguing for? I, I think they would not have been for the simple reason that banks were not in the business of making small consumer loans in 1934. That was the very reason you needed a Federal Credit uh, Union Act in the first place, because nobody was competing to provide these loans other than loan sharks, and Congress had no interest in protecting their competitive status. Banks were not in this business. That's why you needed the Act. Their competitive interests were not in Congress's mind. Even if they'd had the interpretation that it has today, they were still not in that business. This was not what they were about. And simply because they would have objected doesn't mean Congress took their interest into account. This was a Congress that was not particularly sympathetic to the interests and concerns of banks. What is your basis for saying that banks were not into this business in the 1930s? It it resounds throughout the legislative record. They say the reason we need this statute is because no one is in a position to provide small consumer loans. The small consumer couldn't put up adequate security for the bank to provide the loan, and it was usually an amount too small for for the banks to bother with. Over time, they have become competitors with credit unions. But the question is, did Congress view them as competitors in 1934, and did it enact the common bond provision to protect their status as competitors? And it's clear that they did not. Do you agree that a a, a member of the credit union would have standing to establish, uh, to to attack this? Certainly. The the purpose of the provision is to ensure the strength and stability of the credit union. It's a cooperative enterprise. And it seems to me we're really enforcing something of of, of a fiction uh, on our standing doctrine that the the, the most interested challenger in this interpretation, uh, the most injured person uh, or entity, is the bank. I think that line And so uh, we're having a, a credit union member front for the bank's interest. That doesn't make much sense to me. Well, I think the argu- the li- that line of argument confuses the Article Three standing inquiry and the prudential standing inquiry. If it is enough to simply show competitive harm and a regulatory effect to establish prudential standing, then there's no difference between Article Three standing and prudential standing. This Court has made clear, most recently in the Air Courier case, that there is a difference. An Article Three injury is not sufficient to establish prudential standing. Well, no, they, they wouldn't show that there's no difference. It just just say that it would just show that uh, that uh, when you have a regulatory provision, competitive injury is is one thing that will establish. Uh, uh, will establish uh, both Article I and prudential standing. But there are a lot of other injuries that, that wouldn't uh, satisfy uh, prudential standing, even though they'd satisfy Article I. The Court has told us that the prudential standing inquiry turns on congressional intent, not simply effect. Every time Congress imposes a limitation on a regulated entity, it's not necessarily acting with competitive yes. concerns in mind. What will we presume the congressional intent to be? These are hard questions, and I, I, I personally am, am not going to 
comb through the legislative history to find a statement by a couple of senators that will render this arguably within the zone of interest. That does not seem to me an intelligent way for this court or even a, a banking lawyer to try to figure out what the answer is. The so we, we, we have some presumptions, and, and, and Congress should be aware of those presumptions. Surely a reasonable presumption would be when you have a regulatory statute, any provision in that regulatory statute that was designed to limit the scope of activity, of the regulated entity can be sued upon by someone who is uh, who is within the regulated industry and a competitor. Well, then that's, an, that's a new exception to the zone of interest test. If, for example, Congress passes a law saying we're restricting late-night flights international because of the noise, that might benefit bus and train companies who provide late-night service, but they wouldn't have standing to sue if the FAA changes the definition of when late-night begins. They would be injured as competitors, but the intent of Congress was not to protect competition. Change the statute a little. I mean, by saying late night, you make it obvious that the purpose of the statute is to, is to hold down noise. But suppose the statute is we are reducing the number of flights international, period. Then, as the Court has uh, said in all the other prudential standing cases, you look to see what the intent of Congress was. You start with the language of the statute. As you have to find the intent. You have to find what was arguably the intent. Does arguably, arguably within the zone of interest mean you have, to identify, you have to identify the purpose for sure, and then the question is whether this is arguably within that purpose? Or does arguably within the zone of interest mean this was arguably the purpose and arguably, this is arguably within it. Arguably doesn't mean you just sort of have to get in the neighborhood. Arguably is in the case because it's a standing inquiry. It's not a determination on the merits. It means that you don't have to make a final decision on exactly what the statute was designed to do, as you would in deciding the merits of the case, but appreciate that it's just a standing inquiry. But you do have to decide. If there's going to be a difference between an Article Three standing test and a prudential standing inquiry, you do have to decide what the intent of Congress was. Mr. Mr. Roberts, the zone test came up in a case where the Court recognized that there was standing, and it was stated in that case, and then it's been discussed in, in other cases, it's a little hard, isn't it, for you to extract from a case that found standing all these results where there would be no standing? You're using a case that said there was standing and then say, but we can find certain language in it, instead of saying, well, the Court um, dealt with the zone test and it would elaborate on it in a further case. It seems to me you're taking a lot of negative out of a case that was positive on standing. Well, the Court found standing in the data processing case, but it has, in other cases, articulated a test for determining whether they're standing, and it said you looked to congressional intent. And the one thing that's clear here is that this provision was not put in to protect banks. It came from the credit union proponents. Mr. Roberts, I, I know you're still trying to address standing, but so far nobody's even talked about the merits. Well, I'll turn to that right now, Your Honor. The test is that the banks must show that Congress unambiguously expressed its intent on the precise question at issue. The precise question at issue is, may the multiple groups in a federal credit union each have their own common bond, or must they share a common bond? The language simply says, Federal credit union membership shall be limited to groups having a common bond. There is no way to tell from that as a matter of common parlance or technical grammar whether each group must have its own common bond or whether all of the groups in a federal credit union must share the same common bond. It is simply uh, ambiguous language. Congress well, in light of that second geographical limitation clause, it, it's awfully hard to 
give it this broadest reading of groups, each of which could have a common bond, why would you need the geographical limit then? I mean, it's just in, in the second part the, of in the, the community, sentence. In the community, the community. No. The, the I, phrase it just seems like, like such interpretation. There are two different types of credit unions. The occupational credit union isn't confined to a well-defined neighborhood. Only the community credit union has that limitation. And although the Court below said this gives different meaning to the, to the word groups, it doesn't. In each case, groups means more than one group. You couldn't but have a gives. single group. You couldn't have a, se- a credit union composed of only a single group. You it can. has to be composed of groups that have a common bond. So there, there must be more than one no, no. group in every credit union under your reading. No, I, I don't think that's a uh, uh, — if it is a plausible reading, it's not the only plausible reading of the uh, uh, I don't language. think it's a plausible reading, but it's your reading. Uh, our, our reading is that — To groups having a common bond. So you, it seems to me you can't have a single group because that would not be a group having a common bond with other groups. I think the, the plural, as 1 U.S.C. 1 provides, the plural includes the singular. Uh, so that groups could be read to, inc- to include groups. Plural includes the singular? 1 U.S.C. Section 1, the Dictionary Act, says unless otherwise compelled so you, you by you the language. Have, uh, you could have one uh, credit union to which every person in the United States belongs who is employed but for sole proprietorships. The cre- the, nothing in the common bond provision would prevent that. There are other provisions in the no. statute. Oh, well, then, I mean, this wasn't much of a limitation of anything, if that's so. Isn't it it? Was I mean, you, could have, you could have 200 million people in one single credit union. I don't know why Congress bothered with this. As the agency interprets it, it's still a significant distinction. You cannot walk down the street and turn into the nearest credit union and say, I want to make a deposit or give me a loan. You have to be a member of a group that has joined that credit union. But, I mean, everyone except for sole proprietors who is employed works with at least one other person, and therefore those two people, two people anywhere in the United States, could join a credit union. I mean, is that a plausible interpretation? Nothing in the common bond provision prohibits it. If a court determines that's unreasonable under step two of Chevron, it may be invalid, but not because the language is unambiguous under step one. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Helfer? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress expressly limited membership in federal credit unions in the accept clause, and the whole clause is critical. It reads, except that federal credit union membership shall be limited to groups having a common bond of occupation or association, and it then goes on, or to groups within a well-defined neighborhood, uh, community, or rural district. We submit that the first thing you do in making the standing determination under the cases is look at the text and what it does. What does the, what does the common bond uh, requirement do. It limits the persons to whom a credit union can offer its banking services. That's what it does. That's the, that's the effect of it. The first thing you look at is the text. It's just like the Clark case. In Clark, the McFadden Act limitations limited the locations at which a bank could market its services to, the, uh, to, to other people. It has, the same, it has the same effect. So the presumption to go back to Justice Scalia's question, the presumption then ought to be that 
a limitation of that kind that has that effect is intended as a competitive limitation, particularly in the context in which the legislation was passed. Well, in it, that context, are you going to address Mr. Roberts's point that not merely as a matter of legislative history, but as a matter of real history, uh, there simply was no competition at that time as between banks and credit unions for the kind of business that the credit unions uh, served. Yes, I'll, I'll be happy to answer that, uh, uh, to respond to that point. Um, in, in the first place, uh, the banks did testify at the hearings on the D.C. Credit Union Act, which was the precursor to the Federal Credit Union Act, and which Mr. Berengren, who was uh, Bergengren, pardon me, who was the chief credit union advocate, as described as a copy that the Federal Act is a copy of the D.C. Act. The banks testified, and they testified about their competitive concerns with, with the Act. Congress made a change relating to demand deposits, and Congress then carried forward that change into the Federal Credit Union Act. With respect to the precise question of the uh, were the banks uh, uh, providing these services, banks were viewed, the, the NCUA brief at 5 and again at 21, tells us that banks were viewed as an alternative to credit unions, when the FCUA was passed. Were they, were they alternatives for deposits or alternatives for loans or both? They would be alternatives, I believe, for, uh, for both. Not all — banks were not failing to make any loans at all. What Congress wanted in the credit — Well, loans to the, to the small — I'm sorry, borrower. I meant loans to yeah. — we're talking about consumer loans. Yes, yeah. uh, Justice Souter. When Congress — what Congress wanted was more sources of credit. When you read — what they were talking about, they wanted more sources of credit. The banks weren't doing enough. The loan sharks were paying um, — uh, uh, were charging very high prices. The banks, of course, had been through a very difficult time and were asking for a lot of uh, security and, and, and other, uh, other things. Congress had just passed — to go to the historical context — Wait. I, I assume there are two clients of banks, aren't there? They're the people who, who put money in and people who take money out. I mean, th th those who make deposits and those who make loans. Yes. And even if it were true that, uh, that banks were not competing with credit unions for loans, they might still, would seem, would still be competing with them for, for depositors, no? Well, I, I, that's a, a, a very fair point. I'm sorry, I was focusing on loans coming out of uh, Justice Souter's, uh, Souter's question. The focus in the legislative history was on getting money back in to get the economy rolling again. Congress, of course, didn't want to take away the source of, of, of deposits in banks, which were making commercial loans, as well as some consumer loans, but making commercial loans. It wanted to get the economy going again. That's why it passed the Glass-Steagall Act and the Federal Deposit Insurance in June 1933, to put it in its historical context. In June 1933, Congress passed the Banking Act of 1933, which included uh, Glass-Steagall and Federal Deposit Insurance, and it was during that month that the hearings were held on the Federal Credit Union Act, and there was an inquiry, not surprisingly, about what the position of the banks was with respect to the bill. And Mr. Berengren, having laid the groundwork, said the banks weren't opposed. It, it's clear that the banks were in the picture, and the concerns of the banks were in the picture. Were bank, were bank uh, rates regulated, the, the, the interest that a bank could pay on, uh, on a deposit? Uh, I don't believe there uh, — At that uh, time? At, at that time, I don't believe so. Reg Q late, uh, came into effect uh, uh, later on. Um, uh, they were not uh, interest rates at that time. How, how about state regulation? You're not saying there was no state regulation? No, I'm sorry. There certainly was state regulation on the usury side, on, on, on the lending side. I'm not familiar, Your Honor, although I haven't uh, looked carefully at whether there was state regulation that might have Ms. been applicable. On Mr. The Helfer, side. the uh, court below, the CADC, in finding standing for the bank, 
relied on uh, a suitable challenger test for finding standing. Do you defend that test here, or should we look to the zone of interest test? I believe that under uh, this Court's decisions, the question is the zone of interest. What the D.C. Circuit — So you do not defend the D.C. Circuit suitable well, challenger Well, I, I do in, in, in this sense, Justice O'Connor, that what the D.C. Circuit does is in trying to implement zone of interest, carry out this Court's decisions, it's divided its thinking, its, its verbal formulation, into intended beneficiary and suitable challenger. But both are ways of determining whether or not the zone of interest test is met. And the zone of interest Well, there test, isn't much left of the zone of interest test if you rely on the suitable challenger. No, well, that seemed a little odd. Well, that formulation is one which I think this Court doesn't have to reach. This Court's formulation has always been zone of interest. Judge Wald, in concurring in the decision below, actually criticized the suitable challenger test, as implemented uh, by the majority in this case and others, as too narrow, as not fully carrying out the zone of interest test. And so we — but we think that the test is the zone of interest test, and that's what Clark and Camp — May I ask you show. if you would uh, — if there would be standing for the banks if the pr provision, instead of uh, the one we have before us, said that the credit union has to have its offices in the same building that the employer has its offices, and then they wanted to open an office next door, could the bank say, hey, you're getting too big? Well, I think if that were part of this test, that sounds very much to me like the McFadden Act limitations on where a bank can put an office that were at issue in the, uh, uh, in the Clark case, uh, Justice Stevens. And so I think on that basis, I would conclude You'd yes. You think there would be standing? I, I think so, because that sounds to me what if, like What McFadden. if the provision uh, limited the people who could serve on the board of directors of the credit union? So well, you have to have two appointed by management and two employees and a third party or something like that. I think there, when you look at that kind of a, of a statute, you would, you, you would conclude, I think, that it isn't a competitive boundary. It isn't a competitive limit. Now, a bank might come in and say, well, if they say they well, pay limit their — Well, it might limit the number of associations that could do business. It, it, might, it might do that. You'd have to make, make that assessment. Uh, uh, the question would be whether, of course, there would be Article Three standing in, in the first place where you could show a direct uh, — Well, you'd have, you'd have a proliferation of credit unions that didn't qualify on the director standing. They're just all over the country taking a lot of loans that the banks would otherwise get. Well, if, uh, if they could if, demonstrate that factually, that they just, for some they, reason, it's a lot easier to organize them quickly if they don't have to go through the red tape of appointing all these directors. I think that is um, uh, harder than a clear competitive boundary like this one on who you can, who you can serve. Um, and uh, in that one, I — But it's who can serve, not only who you can serve. That's right. That would identify what unit can serve, which is also what happens here. What affects the, what affects the bank's competitive interest is, as we've is shown — Is a proliferation of credit unions. Is the — is taking away — is, is taking away uh, customers. But wouldn't that mean that any time a restriction affected the number of credit unions out in the market, the bank could have a standing to challenge that restriction? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have to uh, — when, when if you look, not, why not? Why wouldn't that be enough? Uh, I think that the uh, — at some point, the uh, relationship between the, um, uh, the nature of the, of the, of the limitation uh, and — I'm the, suggesting maybe the limitation has to be on one on conduct rather than one on who may do business. And uh, uh, in, in response to that, I would say that, that Clark is a case — Camp is a case on who may do business, what business you can do. That's a Glass-Steagall case. But Clark is a case on where you can do business. It's not an activities case. It's not a Glass-Steagall case. It's a McFadden Act case, which is why I, I answered well, your I'll move it from where to who. <laughs> where, where to — I'm just wondering if, if your test wouldn't require us to say any restriction that limits 
the number of entities that may do business by meeting certain qualifications would be subject to challenge by a competitor. Well, I, I think that if the, um, uh, if, if the limitation um, uh, affected the competitive authority of a, re- uh, of a regulated entity. Well, in, it, it affects number, and number always affects competition. Well, if number always affects uh, competition, and, and uh, it seems to me that the principle is that in a regulated marketplace, limitations on your competitor are limitations that it's sensible to believe that Congress uh, uh, would permit the, um, uh, the, com- the other competitors to, uh, to meet. And if that's that kind of limitation, then I would then I would agree that they would have standing. They're standing any time you have a limitation on the number of entities that may enter the business. Well, there's um, — or, or that may, by its natural tendency, limit the number of entities. I, I think it is true that the first thing you look at is, is the text and what, and, and what it does. And if it has the effect of limiting one competitor in a regulated marketplace, which is, which is what this is, that cases like data processing, uh, which involve data processors, Arnold Tours, which involve travel agents coming — coming in, even though the Court said there was no indication in the, uh, at all that the Court was concerned about data uh, uh, — about uh, um, travel agents uh, would permit standing under those I'm, circumstances. I'm, I'm, what, I'm, go ahead, I'm sorry. Please. I was just to finish up on that. What we're doing here, what's involved here on the standing side, the cause of action comes from Section 10 of the Administrative Procedure Act. The question here is carrying out Congress's intent in the Administrative Procedure Act. The Court has interpreted Congress's intent as being to facilitate judicial uh, review. It makes it presumptively reviewable. It's not an especially demanding test. These are all the terms in Clark in carrying out Congress's intent in, in Section 10. Uh, then you only uh, deny standing uh, in carrying out Section 10 uh, congressional intent when the interests are simply not implicated by or are inconsistent with the statute. That was Air Courier, the postal employees, an air courier. They're just separate from the interests of the, of the statute. But it is congressional intent in Section 10, which is, which is critical. And when you combine that with the clear congressional intent to limit credit unions Would it be a serve, different case if Congress had made an express finding that the sole reason for making this requirement is that we think this will maximize the number of credit unions that can succeed in the marketplace? It, it certainly is true. Uh, uh, if they made such a finding, would there be if they made such If they made such a finding, at some point you're going to get close to a case like Block uh, versus well, Community. I don't want another case. What about my case? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just using that to, to discern the principle that would, would, be, would be applicable. Um, when Congress manifests an intention that a particular group, it was in Block, it was the uh, milk uh, consumers, not be allowed to get judicial review, either by what it says in the statute or by the way it structures the statute, then you don't have standing under Section 10. Well, I'm not clear on it. Does that mean in, in the hypo I gave you, you'd say there was, was standing or was not standing? I, uh, in that hypothetical, I think if Congress clearly said in the statute this is the sole and only purpose of it, then that would be a manifestation of congressional intent that other people not uh, 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 sue. But uh, legislation — You're saying there'd be no standing. There'd be no standing. I'm okay. sorry. Yes. That's but right. — I'm sorry. I didn't mean to — I didn't want to duck it. But yes, th- yes, there would be no standing. But But — Legislation is almost never passed for one purpose. They always have, have multiple, multiple purposes. You know, here, uh, to come back to a point on the, le- on the legislative history of, uh, of the Act, a uh, point was made by my colleagues that um, uh, uh, the banks uh, didn't say anything about the common bond uh, provision. Well, they didn't say anything about the common bond provision because it was in the bill from the beginning. It was the, the very point that they made, that the credit union advocates had put it in, 
the banks didn't have to ask for a common bond provision. Um, the, uh, 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 there is an indication in one of the NCUA studies that's cited in the brief that suggests one hypothesis was that the common bond was designed by Mr. Filene, who was a credit union advocate, and others to assure that the banks would not object to the bill. That's at page four of the NCUA study in Mr. federal Helford, credit union memory. Mr. Helper, do I understand correctly that the, that language, common bond, was originally in state provisions before there was a federal? Yes, it was in state provisions and in a model uh, uh, provision uh, as well. And, and in that light, I'd like to know whether any states have interpreted their legislation using the same language, groups having a common bond, to mean what the government and um, the credit unions are now asserting. Have any states uh, so interpreted no, that language? Uh, none is cited in, in the briefs, and I'm not aware of any, uh, Justice Ginsburg. But do I also understand that if the legislation that's now pending the proposed legislation uh, with respect to defining precisely uh, groups having common bond, if that legislation passed, this case would be moot? Uh, if that legislation uh, passed, uh, this parts of this case might be moot. It would depend uh, because it would not. I, I guess there is actually some legislation which might moot the whole case because it would eliminate the common bond requirement completely. It that says that members of any federal credit union shall be limited to one or more groups, each of which have within such group a common bond. Uh, if that if that if that were passed, if that legislation were were passed, it would eliminate yes, it would eliminate our argument uh, uh, that the statute now requires one common bond uh, for all of uh, for all of the members. I'd, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Certainly. Um, I assume that the basic standing question, this is the assumption, is whether you, your clients, the plaintiffs, suffer the kind of injury that Congress or that this statute intended to protect these kind of people against. That's basically the question of standing, isn't it? Uh, Are they within, and you have to add the word arguably, and once you add the word arguably, it becomes a problem. I don't know if you have, but I never in 17 years of being a judge have found a position that a lawyer couldn't plausibly argue. <laughs> well, and, and I think that Justice uh, White... Am I right? I'm just asking, that's yes. the assumption on which my question. I take it you basically agree with that assumption. Uh, yes, uh, um, Justice Breyer, with, although it is not necessary to show under the cases that there was a specific, an intent to benefit the particular... I, I'm saying we have to interpret a statute. The object, the question is, is are the plaintiffs suffering the kind of injury that this statute seeks to protect these kind of people against or compensate them for or uh, prevent in the future? Or prevent them from yeah, suffering, right, yes. Right. Okay. Yes, essentially. Now, that's the question. All right, and the answer is how do we decide if it's arguably so? Now, what I don't understand, and this is my question, and I got this very much from Justice Stevens, I think what he was trying to do say, why do we answer this question to the use of presumptions? It's going to be pretty tough. We'll make up a presumption, and then in the 400,000 pages of statutes and regulations, we're going to find some cases where that presumption doesn't work. It mixes up the lawyers. They forget it. Why don't we just answer that question exactly like we answer any other statutory question? And if, in fact, we use legislative history, fine. And if, in fact, we don't, fine. 
but it's a typical statutory question that should be answered without the use of presumptions that will be good for this ticket and day only. That's, that's basically my question. Uh, I, I don't think that you need to have any presumptions here. I think that you use the traditional tools of statutory. Okay. Then if you do not want us to use presumptions and think we don't have to, my next question would be right here. We have some language that restricts this to groups. From looking at the language, I have no reason at all to think this was done to protect banks at a time in history when, in fact, people were passing this kind of statute to protect depositors, lenders, and get out of the Depression. They wanted — all right. Now, so if the language doesn't help me, I personally sometimes find legislative history useful. And when I go to that legislative history, I do not find one word that suggests that this statute was designed to help competing banks. And therefore, whether I use legislative history or whether I don't use legislative history, without any presumption coming in, which I don't know what it would do elsewhere, I find it difficult to see how your clients have standing. Uh, Justice Breyer, the, uh, uh, the, the reasons that we have standing are that the statute, the effect of the statute, what the statute does is to limit who the credit unions can sell their banking services to. That's the first thing you look at. The second thing you look at when you look at the at the legislative um, at the legislative history is that, with all respect, you do find that the banks were involved and that they were concerned uh, and that and that they were there. And that is so. Where is that? Now, we tell me that we're in the legislative history. That that is in. You have to start with the legislative history of the D.C. Credit Union legislation, which was passed in 1932. Mm -hmm. Okay, at the at the uh, hearings on that act, Senator Keene said. I agree with the President that we ought to go very slowly with anything that will interfere with banks at the present time. That's in the 1932 hearings at page 31. At those That's on a different, uh, a different provision. I mean, you're, you're referring us to what happened in a whole different law. Uh, Justice O'Connor, this um, uh, law, it, my colleagues agree, is the precursor to the Federal Credit Union Act. And Mr. Bergengren, who was the sole witness on the Federal Act, referred to the D.C. Act as a copy. That's at 1933 hearings at page 29. So this is not some separate and different law that we're looking at. It is the exact precursor that uh, Congress passed before it passed the Federal Credit Union and, Act. And it had the, the group's language in it? Yes, it did. It had exactly the same group's language. Uh, Senator King still alive. Exactly. Senator Keene still alive when the act we're looking at was enacted? <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. You don't really know, do we? Uh, uh, I'm Never sorry, mind. Justice Scalia. I don't, uh, uh, I don't but, know. But is there, I don't want you to stop before you've said, I have page 31 of the 32 Act. Is there anything else? Well, you also have the bankers testifying in, on the, in the proceedings on the, 32, on the 32 Act about their competitive concerns, particularly with respect to deposit taking by, uh, by the credit unions. And you have that. Congress changing the act in that respect to uh, accommodate the bankers' concerns, and you have that change carried forward to the Federal Credit Union Act um, uh, as well. Uh, you, you do not have the banks complaining about the common bond provision because the common bond provision, the common bond restriction, was in the act already. There just wasn't any need to say anything about it or to ask for it. Now, not in the legislative history, but in the record here, let me point out something else. Mr. Filene wrote an article in the American Bankers Association Journal in 1925. It's in the lodged materials, lodged by the government, at tab 2, at page 24, in which 
He's, he wrote it in the Bankers Association Journal to, uh, to reassure the banks that the credit union system wouldn't be a competitor because, and this is a quote now, credit unions are organized within specific groups, close quote, and have to meet the common bond requirement. So I think the fair reading of the overall history, and I emphasize, Justice Breyer, that Eileen article is not, in the, is not in the legislative history technically, but it is in the materials before the Court. The overall reading is that the credit union advocates wanted the common bond for their own purposes, recognized that it would help uh, to make sure that the banks didn't oppose the bill at a time at which what the congressional goal was not to injure or hurt the banks. The goal was to restore the banking system to health, which is why they passed the Banking Act of 1933. I, at I, least arguably, I, you say. At, right? at least arguably, yes. yes. <laughs> I, I find it persuasive, but, I, but at least arguably. I, I, we're, we're talking about federal law here, but uh, there, there is uh, some law in the states on the position. There are a number of states that have uh, provisions uh, regulating medical practice, that uh, dentists and optometrists cannot use certain procedures or uh, administer certain drugs. I take it on, under your theory that if those were changed to expand the uh, uh, the functions and the and the and the uh, privileges of an optometrist or dentist, that it, that any doctor could sue. A doctor who was uh, who who was injured by that, I think these same principles that have been used in the standing cases would lead to that result. Uh, is that the law in the states generally? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Justice Kennedy, I, I simply can't answer that. Uh, the unauthorized question. practice of law Overall. actions are, are largely based on that sort of reaction uh, and are, are permitted. Yes, uh, uh, Chief Justice. It's probably if, I, not. if I may turn to the merits, I'm sorry. Just a little one tiny question on history. Am I correct in assuming that the 32 statute involving the District of Columbia was enacted during the Hoover administration and that this statute was enacted after a rather dramatic change in, in the status of the government? Uh, that's, uh, that, is, that is correct. The statute was uh, 32 and then, and then 34. That's absolutely correct. Uh, on, the, on, on the merits, uh, we think that Congress, that, that the question here, the Chevron question is not uh, what uh, General Waxman, as General Waxman described it, about unambiguous language used by Congress. The question is, is the congressional intent clear? And you determine congressional intent largely by looking at the language, to be sure, but by using all, all of the tools of statutory construction. Well, I guess we have to ask if the statutory language is ambiguous. Is it ambiguous? We, uh, I submit, uh, uh, your any reasonable interpretation by the agency. That's right. And I submit that the and, and the courts, both the Sixth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit, held that the legislative intent, as expressed in this language, was not ambiguous, shown in two ways that I will uh, summarize I, here. I would hope we would look at the language of the statute to answer the question of whether it's ambiguous, not at some legislative intent. Well, the, Let's the, look at the language. Is the language ambiguous? Uh, the, uh, uh, we submit that the language is not. Chevron says that uh, uh, the intention, congressional intention, is the law and must be given effect. But the language is not ambiguous in terms of what the statute uh, intended for two reasons. One is that, that the accept clause, the whole clause that we've been talking about, is an exception that both limits credit union membership and limits the NCUA's otherwise broad authority at the beginning of the statute. They get very broad authority to determine who can be the member of any, the member of any, any credit union. And then they go on and say, Congress goes on and says, except that credit union membership shall be limited to groups having a common bond. If the limit has to be, we submit, and as the Sixth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit held, has to be one common bond per credit union because 
if it isn't, if a credit union could join together an infinite number of distinct groups, then the credit union, then the common bond limitation would not have its intended limiting effect. Mr. Roberts conceded that point. He Mr. said, Mr. aren't there other limitations that would prevent this infinite progression? There are, at the, uh, there are other limitations that the agency has imposed in its discretion, like not letting, co- not letting credit unions compete with one another. Those are not statutory. But the key point, Justice Ginsburg, is that, as Mr. Roberts admitted, the way they read the statute, the common bond limitation has no effect. It allows everybody who is employed to, uh, to join AT&T, AT&T credit. This clause, the accept that credit union membership shall be limited to, uh, to groups having a common bond has no limiting effect, and that's what the Sixth Circuit said. There's no reason to have that clause if, um, uh, uh, if you read it the way the NCUA reads well, it. Well, right we know now. the agency considers the language ambiguous, and we know that some members of Congress do, too. What credit, if any, should we give to that? Well, the agency and its predecessors interpreted the common bond clause to require one common bond per credit union from the time of enactment until 1982, nearly 50 years. And the and, and, and from the time of enactment and for that long is strong evidence about what the clarity of the uh, of the original intention uh, uh, was. It's a Chevron one relevant point. Uh, 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 with all respect, Congress is is uh, is in the business of determining what the law is is going to be. This Congress is, and its views about whether the law ought to change are views that um, uh, uh, are entitled to respect going forward, but not about what this. Law but means. They, did say, like, they did say this is a bill to clarify the existing law and ratify the NCUA interpretation. Well, I, I think I can say with all respect, the credit unions have lobbyists, too, and, the, um, uh, and that we ought to look at what, the, um, at what this text says. In this respect, said that. Do we know who said that, that particular quote? Was that Senator? Was his name, too? No? <laughs> if he was still alive, uh, uh, I'm that, sure he would have. That's why I thought it might be relevant if states, having the same language, interpreted it the way the government is urging us. Yes, absolutely. And the government doesn't cite any such uh, 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 interpretations, and I'm not not aware of any, uh, Your Honor. This case is a lot like Dimension, the Dimension case, where the Fed came in and and wanted... I'm sorry, uh, uh, Chief Justice, uh, the Dimension case, Dimension versus Board of Governors. I thought you said Dementia. You said this case is a lot like Dimension. (laughs) That's arguable, too. I (laughs) Perhaps I ought to skip dimension and go on to parallel clauses. <laughs> the ins- uh, in dimension, in any event, the agency came in and said, we need to construe uh, the definition of bank in the, in the Bank Holding Company Act so as to reach uh, institutions that are uh, what the so-called non-bank banks, and uh, that there were strong public policy reasons to do it. The agency here says there's strong public policy reasons to have a multiple uh, unlimited common bond um, uh, requirement uh, 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 provision, and, and that's properly addressed to Congress, as in dimension where Congress, after this Court's decision, made the change. Going back to the parallel clauses for one moment, the, um, uh, the community credit union clause, the agency agrees, uh, does require every community credit union to have a single common bond of community. But it says the preceding and parallel clause in the statute permits this unlimited number of, uh, uh, of members. And we submit, with all respect, that doesn't, make any, that doesn't make any sense. Both clauses are doing the same work in the statute. Both clauses are limiting the groups that can join any one credit union. 
The difference, we're told, is a difference between within, which is a restrictive prepositional uh, phrase, and having, which is, we're told, an explanatory participial phrase. Um, uh, that just isn't reading the statute. That's an overemphasis on the grammatical, uh, uh, on the King's English. Not I suppose under, under the agency's interpretation, if there is only one group in, in a credit union, the people in that group don't have to have any common bond at all. It's, it's, it's only groups that have to have a common bond, right? So if, <laughs> no, if you have more, you know, AT&T and other, other companies, all those companies have to have a common bond. But I think that's the logical uh, um, uh, conclusion, uh, Justice Either Scalia, that or do. you can only have groups and you can't have one company. That, that's right. But they do, in fact, permit one, one, one company, one group there. They do permit those kinds of credit unions uh, in any event. That's not at all, let me just finish up by saying, what AT&T is. AT&T here, so you can get a sense of what it is, is a $500 million tax-exempt conglomerate, and it has more than 300 distinct employee and associational groups um, in it. That means that it has more than 300 separate common bonds uh, inside it. Its range is truly enormous. It has picked up employee groups that are as small as eight workers. So it is, it is capable of going around the country and, and drawing in virtually everybody. Uh, How does it is. compare in size with your client? Uh, it compares in, in size as follows, uh, Your Honor. Randolph State Bank of Asheboro, North Carolina, is one-third the size of uh, AT&T credit. Thank you, Mr. Helper. Mr. Waxman, you have one minute remaining. Thank you. Justice Ginsburg, in response to your question about the states, the amicus briefs submitted by the parties in support of our position I uh, advise us that 36 or 37 of the states permit, state regulators permit multiple groups within a single common bond and multiple groups with different bonds. There are of the five states that have the exact language that the federal statute has, either two or three have already interpreted that statute to permit the interpretation that the National Credit Union Administration has. Is that but, after the federal interpretation, or was it before the federal interpretation? Uh, I don't know, but it's, it's referenced, Justice Scalia, at page 3 and 4 in the amicus brief of the National Association of State Credit Union Supervisors. I mean, maybe a copycat kind of thing. I'd be more impressed the, if the, it came uh, rather than later. With your time has expired. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, we'll hear argument.